Well, hello and welcome to Inexos Access All Areas. My name is B, and I will be co-hosting this series of podcasts with my Inexos nerd Hayden Murdoch. We will be delving deep with you all to explore everything there is to know about this iconic band of brothers in excess, sharing music, tours, videos, albums, and oh, so much more. Well, hello, welcome to Excess Access All Areas, episode 144, the podcast that aims to dive deep in all things great about NXS, do it with a bunch of patrons and friends and loyal listeners, and also do it with compadre B. How are you? I think I'm going to fire you up today. You've got that look of like, I need a podcast juice flow to get things going. How are you? <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> right, okay. But this is going to make me feel better. This is my happy place, Hayden. But he's had to drive up and down the driveway six times today or uh, we'll walk up and down six times or negotiate her father on his bike going uh-huh. up and down the driveway six times. <laughs> he's off the bikes, is he? He's banned from the bike? Yeah, sort of. He's okay. Uh, <laughs> I believe you just got Oh, Mouse, how's your in excess week been? Before I do that, though, uh, we've just come off five episodes of Elegantly Wasted. We've just hit number 17 in the British charts ourselves this week, so a bit of navel-gazing. How amazing is that? Thank you, thank you, Great Britain. I think our peak in Great Britain is 16, so, gee, hopefully this gets us over the line and gets us uh, up a little bit higher. But thank you very much. Maybe it's elegantly wasted that's tipped it over the edge. Uh, but we had a lot of fun with those five episodes, rounding it off with all the reviews last week, Pete. Yes, yes. I mean, absolute favourite. I think we could talk about In Excess, um, his album um, Elegantly Wasted, a lot more myself. I reckon we could have got, done another um, <laughs> episode. But going back to being... Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, sorry, you go, I was you just go. Gonna, no, no, it's just something that you mentioned off air. Um, the Paula documentary may have um, helped a little bit with our podcast getting into the charts yep. in England maybe because yeah. that has been pretty good. It's been good for a lot of fans to get back in touch with me actually and say that they now understand what Paula went through. So, you know, one or two, yeah. only takes one or two. That's all right. Everybody professes to understand everyone's truth but until you've lived and walked in those shoes you never really really know and I think one of the things we learned exactly. through this podcast and I think myself is that especially from uh, Nick Egan who knew both Paula and Michael individually and you know he was there to see good bad and ugly and that was quite an insight for me and allowed me to sort of maybe have a little more perspective and empathy for Paula given what you know the circumstances for her so I'm not going to watch the doco because I don't really want to go through that raw stuff again but um, those who do hopefully you do enjoy it and learn something from it. That aside, you just got a little bit of good news and no, I like to say what's come across your desk. Something's literally come across your desk from Chicago. Is that right? It has actually come across my desk and hopefully it might come across everybody else's desk because um, Laura got a brand new computer, everybody. I don't know if you all know, (laughs) if you follow Laura, but she's had a new computer. So um, she's been looking for a desktop, um, you know, a a picture, what you call them, wallpaper, whatever you Mm. call it for your desktop. Screensaver. And she's come... A screen well, you have a screensaver as well, yeah. Wow. Um, and she's found a um, website called NXS Wallpaper, and uh, so <laughs> she's got me onto that. So I've just downloaded one, and I've knocked out the background, and I can't wait to get you off the show so I can actually have a play and put a new um, p- picture on. But if you are a patron, she's actually put the link into the um, patron page there. So yeah, yeah, go along. It's all ready for you. It's very exciting. Well, imagine all the toner that's going to be printed out in ink from all these uh, uh, office work <laughs> suppliers with all this new NXS wallpaper. Uh, it be kaleidoscope <laughs> of download printing. 
Thank you, Laurie. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, how's your NXS week been overall? I know you, you were going to be going up to Ballina there and staying at the Murphy residence up there in terms of their property and things, but there was a couple of renovations going on, but you're still going away. Uh, that aside, anything, anything else come across your NXS desk? I did see a nice new picture of Michael with Rhett when they were around about four or five years of age, and that was very sweet. So that brightened me up this morning to see new photos. Always good to see new photos, isn't it? Oh, that reminds me, we still got lots of new p- photos from Michael Plotnikoff yes. uh, that, that yes. we need to share with people. I still need right. to share those. Mm. Yes. And again, not the new section, but just a little summary. Uh, there was a little late-breaking article that came out yesterday, but uh, NXS Band Management have withdrawn the song Devil Inside from one of the uh, mini-series or one of the series uh, that's being played in U- in the US at the moment. I did send that out to our fan page. It was a bit of a sort of, a, I guess, a, a dramedy show there that had sort of a topic on abortion and uh, I think band didn't want to have their songs attached to that and things like that. Uh, so, yeah, a little bit controversial, but uh, if you do sort of read that there, it's one of those things we don't aim to solve the world or have a right and wrong, but uh, did sort of go a little bit viral yesterday uh, in terms of okay. that. And that was just sort of something that uh, hit the zeitgeist. That aside, B, we are going to get into a very exciting topic today with Michael Browning. I mentioned last week that I did speak to him last week at length. And we thought we would put one big episode uh, and not split it up and put it into one big flow. And we're going to do that in a moment, but we're going to welcome our patrons early today because, uh, you know, so we don't have a big news and close out today, uh, but we welcome our patrons now and just remember they are the linchpin of this show and we need more and we'd love to have you on board for the journey. So over to you, B. I'd like to say hello to everybody outside on the highway. Let's all say hello to everybody outside. It's about 10,000 people at least. Hello. And welcome to the podcast, our honorary members, Tim Farris, Nick Egan, Mark Opitz, Richard Simpkins, Cameron Adams, Murray Woods, Darren Jones, Paul Jolie, our patrons, our beautiful patrons, Carmen, Laurie, Carrie-Anne, Danielle, Sarah Markram, Sarah Camia, Dr. Jim, Katie, Lisa Mack, happy birthday, sweetheart, having a good weekend, I hope. <laughs> Anne-Marie, Susan P, Susan B, Foxy, Pedro, Mandy, Lisa, Yvonne, Amanda H, Amanda V, David, see you soon, Tracy, Paul Buckley, Ella, Ryder, Tony, Erica, Abigail, Martin, (laughs) Belle, Jim, Matey, Kelly, Jackie, Sean, Sheila, Shannon, Helen, Brett, Suzanne, Laurel, Bard, Genevieve, Shelby, Manny, Laurie, Jill, Yari, Laius, Heidi, Paula, Lisa, Angie, Nancy, Juliet, Scott, Anthea, Maria, Nicole, Tracy, Vern, Jamie, Diana, Stefan, Andrew, Georgie, Stephen, Keisha, Mark, Vern, Shane, Lachlan, Mandy, Rachel, Nick, Sula, Amy, Diana, and Paul. And our special mentions are to Sue D, Joe Robbins, John A. Vink, Michael Spriggs, Glenn Davis, Paul Boozy, and Jay Finlinson. Welcome to the podcast. All right, B. Well, let's get straight into it. We're going to have Michael come on in a moment. And, uh, you know, really fascinated to have a chat with him last week. And 
as I said to some of the listeners, I've tried to sort of structure it a little bit about, you know, homage to his career. And um, he was, you know, involved in excess over a two, three year period. So it was probably important for us to sort of do justice to his work with ACDC, his work with Noiseworks, his, his, his uh, industry experience and working with Chris Murphy in the early days. So uh, there is a bit of a flow here. But it really does go through that sort of ACDC period, in excess period, and we will do probably really uh, well similar drop of information about each. Very erudite in his in his answers. Um, some great anecdotes, um, some great stories uh, that you know come from the source of someone who was there there and then. We always love within excess access all areas to create a bit of a fly on the wall back in time, don't we, B? And I think Michael really delivers on this today. So. Without further ado, we're going to welcome uh, Michael Browning on to our podcast. Take it away, B. Hey, this is Tim Farris. Big shout out to Hayden and B. Also want to say hello to all the listeners and NXS fans. Thanks for listening. I love you, Hayden and B. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. And now it's time for Topic of the Week. All right, thanks for joining us today. That's a pleasure. Just a backdrop within Excess Axel here is it really is an anthology to all things sort of uh, about the band, how they came to existence, and we've done it from a a 1977 to uh, what will ultimately be a 2012 and then, you know, beyond sort of to now type Mm. of anthology. And uh, I guess your involvement in the early days was a really pivotal piece of that. If I could acknowledge your career, uh, nightclub discotheque owner, booking agent, artist manager, hard rock cafe owner, deluxe label co-founder, Rust founded, which is obviously one of your current sort of projects with furniture and homewares, and author of Dog Eat Dog, which I've just sort of recently discovered in my research. Sounds like a fascinating read. Love to explore that a bit later. Thanks for your contribution to everything you've done, and um, you must have had a, a really satisfying career thus far, we should say. It feels pretty much like another lifetime, but pretty interesting. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, I guess probably Melbourne, where you really made your mark on things in the early days, uh, must have been a really, really productive scene back then uh, between the 60s and the 70s with, you know, your involvement then. Yeah, well, Melbourne back in the uh, in the late 60s was pretty much the music capital of Australia, if you like. And yeah. It was a, a place where in, in the inner city, many, many clubs opened up, including mine, which was called Sebastian's. They, oddly enough, were all... None of them were licensed. Yeah, you know, they they were just all you know music venues where yeah you know, people just came to hear the music and you know it was just a re- really exciting period in Melbourne and if you could re- relate it to anything else that was happening in the world, it was probably like swinging London. You know, back in that same period, it was just a great place for music. I must say, what piqued my memory and and interest to get in contact with you was seeing you speak on. Uh, great musical cities. Uh, maybe it was a little Melbourne doco for about ten years ago, and oh, okay. There is one on London and Chicago and LA and things, but uh, yeah. I guess between the sixties and seventies, Melbourne um, seemed to be a place where bands uh, came to. I guess uh, to sort of make their mark, and it was quite state based. You know, followings in those days for music wasn't it? a band could be big in one city and struggle in another. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but most of the bands migrate to Melbourne. Yeah, from uh, Sydney, from Perth, from Adelaide, Brisbane. They all came to Melbourne. There were just bands everywhere. They were living in you know every, every suburb. You know, house bands that were you know, had come from somewhere. Yeah, I, I guess you know on another level, you know, sort of like a little bit later on in the history of you know music internationally, LA was 
you know, the same, you know, it was just like a magnet, bands all over America heading to LA. And, and I guess probably uh, in the early days, how old were you, if you don't mind me asking, when you set up Sebastian's? I think I was about 19 or something, something like that, yeah. And, and what was the impulse? Well, you had a love of music from the get-go, yeah, it was just part of the DNA? Yeah, I, I left school and I worked at a big department store in Melbourne called Myers. I always had a passion for, you know, music. I, it really came from me hearing the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and I fell in love with the whole that whole thing. I lived in the rural area of Melbourne and I had a friend whose father owned a big block of flats in St Kilda, uh, right smack opposite the beach. There was a huge penthouse on the top of this block of flats, which he found difficult to rent because it was a beautiful place, but it was actually in the wrong location kind of person that would want, want a penthouse. So we used to stay in there whenever we wanted. When I, when I was working at Myers, I just got the idea that we would have a party in the, in this apartment and Myers had a huge amount of young people working for them. And I just kind of knew a lot of people and spread the word. And all of a sudden we had something like, you know, a hundred, couple of hundred people turn up at this party in this penthouse. Monday morning feels so bad. And my friend and I looked at each other and said, well, we should just do this every weekend and charge admission. <laughs> so we did. So that was Sebastian's was started out in that uh, in that particular penthouse. Then um, uh, obviously we were young and naive. I think I was even younger than 19. I was probably more like 18 or something like that. We, yeah. we, we, didn't, we didn't know that, you know, you had to get approval from council and <laughs> all those kind of things. We just yes. kind of did it and it became incredibly successful. We, you know, we we had all the latest young bands from Melbourne, all the, you know, kind of the Mersey beat, yeah, kind of yeah. influence, influence bands and it became hugely successful. But we were closed down after about three, two or three months because we just shouldn't, we, you know, we just, it was totally, totally illegal. So yeah. when we were closed down, we found we found premises in the city, right smack bang on the city, and uh, opened it up. It was a three story building, or it was decorated as if it would Edwardian mansion. It yes, was antiques, and it was pretty amazing. Giant chandeliers, and and, and that became extraordinarily successful. You know, like a place where every band, wherever they came from, wanted to play. We weren't the first discotheque in Melbourne. There was another one that had opened up a couple of months before us called The Thumping Tum. That was very, very popular. Then they just started opening up all over the place, a place called The Catcher, another one called The Biting Eye. Just an incredible scene. Um, yeah. So, so bands just came from everywhere because of, of these venues. There was also at the tail end of a big town hall, every Saturday night there were big concerts in town halls or around Melbourne. Uh, that was more of a thing that that was really going gangbusters in the 50s when rock and roll first started. It was at the tail end of that as well. So there are a lot of these big, huge you know, sort of dance venues going on around the suburbs. And in the inner city were all the discotheques were with, well, they were called discotheques, but they actually had live music. And it must be uh, fascinating because I... Obviously, through my sort of research and knowing a little bit about you also, you know, people like Doug Parkinson and Billy Thorpe and these people who you ended up ultimately, uh, you know, managing and, yeah, you know, yeah. booking and things. Mm. Uh, did that, was that a consequence of just having that establishment in the city? You were able to sort of start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, my, yeah. my role in the, uh, in, this, in, the, uh, in the establishment was to be the person that books bands. And, you know, I, you know, I, I mean, I really you know, kind of just fell into it. So I started booking the bands. Some of the bands were either changing management or didn't have management. 
Mm. And they either approached me or I approached them and I started up a booking agency and that evolved into a management where I started. We're very, very lucky, you know, in the city of Melbourne to, you know, have people who have sort of paved the way. Uh, obviously yourself and Michael Chark and Michael Gadinsky and uh, various people cross paths and things and created a, a real sort of uh, juggernaut momentum for, for bands in this city, didn't it? It did. It did. My agency sort of evolved into an agency with Michael Kodinsky. We, you know, we called it Consolidated Rock. I mean, we had every band on our books that was worth having, you know. Yes. Just, um, we were subsequently, you know, kind of accused of having a bit of a monopoly at the time. Yeah, because Michael Chug joined the agency uh, yeah. as a booker. We ended up sending him up to Sydney and the same thing happened. You know, we just, we basically scooped up just about every band in Sydney. And then uh, Roger Davies, who now manages Pink and you know, has managed Jeanette Ted Jackson and Joe Cocker and all sorts of people, uh, Olivia Newton-John. Tina, Tina Turner as well, didn't he? Tina Turner. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 He was with us at the beginning as well. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, it had a, had a pretty big legacy, uh, that whole thing. I mean, it's ironic that the three Michaels, that, that must have uh, played, must have got confusing at the time, you, Chucky <laughs> and Kadinsky. Yeah. Uh, did you have a nickname at the time or did to, to differentiate? No, not really. Oh, Chucky. Chuggy was always Chuggy. Yeah, yeah. No one ever called him Michael for some peculiar reason. Michael Gadinsky just became Gadinsky, and I just yeah. became Browning. That's <laughs> the strange way. Yeah, that's right. Now, I assume Michael veered off and opened up uh, Mushroom around that particular time, about 73. Does that sound right? Yeah, but that's yeah, probably. Yeah. And, and then not long after, I think you went in to set up the Hutterer Cafe here in Melbourne, of which uh, a couple yeah, of years no, ago. I, I actually, Michael went into a record label thing. Yeah. And I, and I went into more, more management and I, I, I commenced manage. Well, I'd been managing Doug Parkinson in Focus and I yeah. then I uh, then I signed Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. And that was at the beginning of their of Billy Thorpe's second career, if you like. Yeah, yes. first first one of which was being a pop star out of yeah. Sydney, and then he moved to Melbourne and uh, became like a rock star, and then became like his second career was even bigger than his first. Career. It's almost summer, and I can almost feel that sweet sunshine. Yes, it's almost summer, and I will spend each sweet day slowly frying. I can't wait, I can't wait. You know, then went on to, you know, headline summary, you know, three or four times and, yeah, which would have been around that that era, seventy four, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Maybe played what was at the time the loudest uh, concert I think on record. Is that right? <laughs> oh, he was loud. You know, he was very loud <laughs> at Sunbury. I think he did. He get every amp in Melbourne, every Marshall amp to go to Sunbury. He was a classic sort of showman where he used to exaggerate in the nicest possible way. But he, you know, like if if, if there'd been a gig where they had five hundred people. You know, he would tell everyone that it was a thousand. It was a pretty 
your standard standard exaggeration in those. <laughs> yeah, just just an interesting aside. Uh, Richard Lowenstein, who we interviewed a few months ago, is doing a mini series, a, a dramedy at the moment that is based upon the late sixties Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, set in Sydney. It's not on Billy Thorpe, but that's the backdrop of music and the young people at the time, and yeah. doing a sort of a narrative series on that, which which does sound quite interesting with Richard. It, it, it's very interesting because yeah. you know Sydney uh, back back in the in that early well mid sixties was pretty out there with an American guy called Lee Gordon, you know, promoting yeah. uh, the Sydney Stadium and lots of sort of sceny clubs around King's Cross and stuff. It was, yeah. you know, sort of a, a hybrid of gangsters and, you know, <laughs> <laughs> rock and roll. <laughs> yeah. And the, uh, yeah. This, the Sydney law enforcement probably weren't as, you know, blue collar as they are these days, were they? No, everyone was on the take. Correct, correct. Now, it must lead into a, a very interesting uh, experience. I love reading uh, your first meeting with a couple of Scottish lads who uh, you got a chance to, I think, uh, do a gig. Was it Hard Rock when you first met ACDC? Yeah, yeah, they they came and played for me at Hard Rock. Yeah, you know, I was just blown away by Malcolm and Angus, really. It was a different singer, different rhythm section. They were, in all honesty, it was a little bit ordinary. Malcolm and Angus were just standout chatted with them after the show and they were heading out over Perth and Adelaide and stuff and I wished them the best and that was about it. Then I got a call from them a couple of weeks later to say we're stranded and we've run out of money. We're in Adelaide and we can't do anything. Um, any chance you could lend us some money? Like, sure. What do you, how much do you need? It's only a couple of hundred bucks. So I sent it to them. came into my office and they said, wow, that was really cool that you lent us that money, you know, because we hardly even know each other and really appreciate it. We started chatting from there and turns out that the gig that they did in Perth, they drove all the way and turned out to be supporting a drag queen. <laughs> and so the, the guy that was actually sort of managing them at the time sort of went by the wayside. So they asked me if I, I was interested, I'd be interested in managing them. And I said, yeah, sure. So that's how it kind of started. And, and there's some fantastic footage just of, of Angus and Malcolm, you know, doing lots of schools and gyms. I based them in Melbourne because they were from Sydney. Myself and my business partner in the Hard Rock Cafe, we published a deal with them where we paid them all a wage. It was about 60 bucks a week each or something. We put them in a house, which we paid for. We paid for uh, their road crew. We bought them a big bus to mm. travel around. And that deal was for six months, after which our deal just reverted to a normal management commission incentive to make them famous very quickly was very high because we we, we got we got to keep all the money mm. that came came in because yeah they were, yeah they were just on a wage so we had them playing everywhere ice skating rings you know everywhere the one thing about ACDC is whether they were playing to 20 people or a thousand people or more they would do the same show every night. You know, Angus would do his routine. So wherever they played, people were blown away and it just built very quickly. Within this, that six months, we had them virtually playing big, you know, sort of, you know, well, smallish arenas, you know, 5,000 seaters on bills with the other big Australian acts like Sherbet and Skyhook. That's kind of how it evolved. This is on a big fat woman from Tasmania. And this one's called Whole Lot of Rosie. 
shillings and a smile. Four, two, three, nine, five, six. You can say she's got a lot. You know, that stability that you gave the band, it just let them go out high in their craft, not worrying about financials. They could just yeah, be, could have that stability just, for a bit, wouldn't it, you know? They were on the bones of their ass. They, they just, the whole thing just needed, you know, settling down financially and, you know, sort of giving, allowing them to get on with what they do. You know, they were signed to Vander and Young, Young and Elbert's up in Sydney, Elbert Productions, which was great. They, 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 yeah, they'd handle the recording side of it. My handle the management side of it. So it was a good good team. Looking at the era, obviously, between the 74 and 79, you know, we probably could call that era the Bond Scott era, really, I guess, couldn't we? You know, you had that sort of management role for them. And then you actually helped them get their deal at Atlantic in America. Is that right? When I, when I was managing Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, I got them a deal with Mickey Most over in England uh, who had a label called Rack Records, highly successful record producer. And I had this machine called the Fairchild, which was a briefcase that opened up the screen popped up and I was able to show Nicky Most, Billy Thorpe performing live. Most people and I think that I'm crazy how we got the deal. So I left that machine behind in England and when I moved back to Australia and my sister was living in London, she was in the music industry. I just left the machine there. So so when, when it came to thinking about putting a deal together for ACDC International, I made a video of, of them playing Festival Hall looking like they'd already made it, you know, with big flashing signs and, you know, like the KISS sign. It was a really great live video of them. So I had that put on this format. This is before video. I should, mm. All of these were made on film and then you had to transfer them onto different formats. So I, I transferred it onto the format that this particular machine used and sent it over to my sister. She was having a meeting with uh, Atlantic Records because – they had a group called Backstreet Crawler that they were launching, featuring Paul Kossoff, and they um, wanted a keyboard player to go on the road with them. Like this American guy went under the name of Rabbit. <laughs> so she went in to see Phil Carson. She she worked for a company that represented Rabbit. So she's in at Phil Carson's office. She said, while she was there, she said, I want to play you my, my brother's band from Australia. So she pulls out the briefcase and played High Voltage. And Phil Carson, you know, kind of just said, stop, stop it, stop the video. And he said, where's your brother? Oh, I've got to speak to him straight away. <laughs> so he got me on the phone and just told me he loved it and wanted me to come over. So I jumped on a plane, went over there a week later, and that's where we did the deal uh, with Atlantic. That's how it all started. And as, as part of the deal, we got an advance, which was technically – yeah, the deal was between Alberts and, and Atlantic. Uh, I was just a manager well, kind of doing the deal, you know. So I, I managed to convince Ted Albert to put the advance back into a fund, which would be a fund so the band could go and base themselves in London, start to, you know, pursue a international career. Probably the most wisest decisions and maybe one I think you could be most proud of, I think, in, in advising a band and and and, and a management uh, in Alberts to do that or productions to do that. I mean, they were they were great. They just, you know, sort of said, yep, yeah, you know, it was was a fairly hefty investment, but it was covered by the by the advance. So it wasn't actually costing them anything. And no. uh, so instead of putting it in their coffers, they put it back into um, providing the the infrastructure needs um, in in London. 
from which we're able to start touring around the country and just building and building, doing the same, exactly what we did in Melbourne. You know, just play everywhere. And they got a residency at the Marquee. Uh, after the first week, started to break every house record the Marquee Club had ever had. Mm. That led to Reading Festival and then tours around Europe. And yeah, it just sort of started from there. Also, too, for the band, just this sort of frustration of trying to differentiate themselves from that punk movement at the time. Because the thing with the band, Malcolm and, and Angus particularly, they were such great players. Punk wasn't really based on great playing, it was based on energy. <laughs> energy yeah. and fashion. You know, oh, yeah. uh, ACDC hated it, you know, yeah. and, and they hated any references directed at them as being punk. I mean, mm. ACDC in, in the traditional you know, kind of uh, perception of what punk would mean were more punk than any of them. But yes. Yeah, they, yes. Didn't have the, they didn't have the fashion and the whole thing, you know, So, and they hated that whole thing. They just wanted to be known as a rock and roll band. The period that we actually arrived in London was probably um, the worst period that we could have possibly have done that. Yeah, it was just everyone was just punk mad. The biggest thing that can happen for you in that period was to get great press from Melody Maker and NME, and they hated the band. <laughs> All they did was rubbish them. Um, fortunately, there were the other magazine, Sounds Magazine, loved them and really rallied behind them. It was a tough period. Melody Maker and they just dictated whatever was cool, you know. And did they see them as an Australian band and do the old Aussie convict thing or did they yeah, just- Yeah, yeah. More, you know, headlines, more chunder from down under. Yeah, okay. I, I wallaby your man. You know, <laughs> yeah. You know, just bullshit. Yeah, dismissive, yeah. You know, it was just a case of getting them out there because we knew that if we put them in front of people, uh, whatever those magazines were saying about them would become irrelevant, you know. Yeah. So, you know, the people, the people would see them and they'd get off in them, and and that was the way we went about it. The irony today is that uh, I'm talking about ACDC, although this is a did exist podcast, but there is a yeah, I've there's there's a there's a method behind my madness, and hopefully our, our listeners right. start, stay with me, but. I think one of the things we did a uh, a very early sort of juxtaposition sort of podcast between NXS and ACDC about you know compare and contrast. I guess we looked at we looked at their their emergence and their pathways in many respects are very similar. They got overseas early enough whilst they still had energy. There's a reason for that, and that and that is that when I signed ACDC, I signed them to a management deal, recording and publishing deal with Chris Murphy, 
And Chris Murphy, I sort of pretty much mentored him into what you've got to do to make this band famous internationally. <laughs> so we followed the same path, you know, um, if you like, you know, yeah. same, same, same basic principle, you know, diff- in a different way, but same basic, basic principle. That's why you would draw that conclusion that it was a similar breaking process. Now, obviously, the ACDC, as much as they're the two brothers, you would probably sort of argue that there really was the third brother, George, who really steered the younger siblings. Yes. You've been sort of quoted before, have sort of talked about the Scottish clan, et cetera, there, that brotherhood, yeah. loyalty, yeah. And, yeah. and that sense of uh, family bubble. Um, yeah. Did that ultimately become hard to, to manage or-, or Oh, we look, it's just, they're a very tight-knit Scottish clan. So anyone that wasn't in that kind of clan, it could never really get as close to them as as you would well, yeah would like, I, I guess. George had, a, I mean, a career with Easy Beats and, and, and the UK and Europe and things yeah. like that. Did he ultimately have a fair say on where the band went with management-wise down the track, or was it an Angus and, and, and Malcolm decision? I'd sort of take them, you know, broke them pretty much around Europe and England. When we started touring around America, you know, really placed placing too much sort of emphasis on it, but that's when the Sharks started to circle, you know. Yeah. You know, yeah, some undermining. And I was just a manager from Australia. The American management companies were big companies. They, they went there was a lot, not a lot of individual managers. It was just big companies, and mm. I, I just think, you know, in hindsight, probably would have been better off just hitching up to one of those companies. And so it became it became difficult. You know, we eventually fell out of on a couple of issues. The straw that ultimately broke the camel's back there was that Atlantic Records wanted to change producers, and I sided with them because it was pretty obvious that we weren't making any progress on national FM radio over there. You know, there were isolated states where it had resonated, but for the most part, it hadn't. Atlantic felt they needed a producer that really kind of knew what the sound was for America at that moment. And that's where I coincidentally happened to be living in a shared place with Matt Lang and his manager, Clive Colver. And that's where, yeah, Matt Lang, got involved, you know, it was a bit more involved because Atlantic hired a guy, Eddie Kramer, who'd engineered Zeppelin, and, but had no real sort of song production skills. It was just great engineer, you know, mm. full, full great sounds. Uh, so he, he didn't work out. I got a call from Malcolm to say, he's going out. So I'm sitting in the same room as Matt Lang and I turned around and I said, mate, we've got to make this record. And you know, eventually he agreed his manager wasn't that keen because Matt was making records for bands that had already gone gold in America. You know, we weren't at that level, but I, I, I just kept talking until Matt agreed. And then I called Malcolm and said, I've got another producer for you. And he said, who is it? I said, Matt Lang, never heard of him, but <laughs> <laughs> anyone but Eddie Kramer. <laughs> right. so I was, don't worry about it. He's great. You're going to love him. I, I didn't I didn't mention that he he'd previously produced the Boomtown Raskins, I thought Malcolm was not going to be that impressed with that. No, no. <laughs> so anyway, that's how it evolved. That caused a bit of a rift between me and the young brothers. As successful as it turned out to be, the relationship between Mutt and the band at the beginning created a bit of a rift because uh, it meant that Bander and Young could have been, you know, amazing producers, 
up to that point, you know, um, were marginalised. It's sort of ironic because, I mean, he, obviously he came onto the Highway to Hell album, which is really the breakthrough album in America. That was a breakthrough album. So, you know, I mean, just like fate to, yeah. After, I mean, I heard it. I heard Highway to Hell and said, this is, this is the one we've been waiting for. Yeah. This and is going to break it wide open. 100%. And yeah. it was pre-MTV and, and it got that foothold in and uh, yeah. uh, did the units and gave them that sort of momentum. Yeah. That, that sometimes a band, you know, In Excess, we obviously had Listen Like Thieves. It was that sort of momentum album that's yeah. enough kick. And I think yeah. Hide Owl, you know, uh, set up, you know, Back in Black in many oh, ways, yeah. you know. Yeah. yeah. Obviously, upon finishing up with them and then sort of Bond passing, it must have been a relatively close period um, given the time frames. Yeah, Bond passed about oh, four or five months after I left. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I was living in New York and then suddenly I'm no longer managing ACDC and so I came back to Australia and I was, I was pretty keen to start up a record label. I was walking around New York and I saw the back of this car had Deluxe written on it. I thought, oh, that's a cool name for a logo. So that's uh, that's how the luck, the name Deluxe started. And then I came back to Sydney where I had a house, sort of just returned to that. Around the corner from where I lived was Chris Murphy, you know, was running his agency, Mark Murphy Associates. We began chatting and I he said, I've come back to start up a label. He said, oh, you know, well, I've got an agency and I've got a couple of bands. And you want to do it together? I said, sure. So... Chris and I started Deluxe. One of the bands, or two of the bands in the agency were uh, In Excess and The Numbers. Mm. So we saw, we signed both of those bands to to the record label and to management. With that particular sort of period there, when you first saw In Excess, um, I think I've written down here, how, what, when and why? Uh, what, what sort of uh, stood out to you that sort of made you feel they were uh, a worthy addition to Deluxe? Chris's agency had them playing at some big uh, old feature theatre place or something in the eastern suburbs. I can't remember exactly where. Um, and, I, and I went and saw them with it. Uh, I hadn't met them. I, I was just, you know, I was just in the audience and um, I'm sitting there thinking, this is like a show band. You know, they were, they were swapping instruments around and look at me, I can play this as well. <laughs> they were like a show band. And I, and I said to Chris, man, they're just, you know, it's like it's this cabaret. Anyway, I, that was kind of what I initially thought. And and that's not very rock and roll, is it, Michael? No, coming <laughs> 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 off ACDC. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, uh, yeah, we just kept talking about them, and they had some demos. I started listening to the demos. They were sort of like punkish. You know, like all their songs were really fast produced. I said, "Gosh, you've got to bring that down to a, yeah." The song's about walking. You've got to bring it down to a walking pace. <laughs> so they brought the, the the tempo of the song down a bit. You know, we had a bit of success with that song. And then I think we released after that uh, Stay Young. Um, yeah, we had a, you know, moderate sort of success. They needed to get a little bit more like an R&B sort of bass, you know, rootsier. I found a song from a band that I loved and I was friends with back back in the uh, late 60s called The Loved Ones. I got them to record The Loved Ones track, a uh, track called The Loved Ones. And that was the first hit that In Excess had in Australia. I've known you well. Running to me, oh, baby, baby, that's all right. 
Michael loved it. He just loved that track. And that sort of started to evolve them into a bit more of a rock-based band than a punk. So they, they kind of evolved from there. And, um, yeah, we started to have some, you know, really good success. Again, we just worked the hell out of them all around Australia, you know, playing, yeah, playing everywhere. Michael just developed into this huge you know, rock star vibe, you know, he was, he was always a good looking guy um, and had potential, but he just grew massively during that period as a as a vocalist and, and as a personality. And then um, we recorded the second album with Richard Clapton producing Underneath the Colours. And that was, that, you know, that was a big evolutionary moment for them as well, you know, that they developed a little bit further from that. And then Chris Chris and I fell out. Uh, and, you know, it was just, uh, I can't even remember what it was all about, but Chris and I just weren't seeing eye, eye to eye anymore. So uh, we'd had the recording publishing and management. I kept the recording publishing. Chris uh, kept the management. He took over and then eventually it became obvious they needed a big, big label uh, because Chris had one of the big budgets and big marketing budgets, video budgets, all the rest of it. I let them go to Warner Brothers on the basis of a, an override percentage thing. We worked out a deal. So Chris basically took over their management and then pretty much followed what I'd previously done with ACDC. Got a deal for them uh, around the world and got them over there touring and it just kind of, you know, went from there. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think he sort of initially got them with that sub-branch of Atlantic Atco, didn't he? Is that right? Yeah, he had them with Atco and then I think uh, from memory it was Universal in in the rest of the world and Warner Man remained with Warner Brothers in Australia. The deal was a bit fragmented and I, I actually felt at the time that if you made a mistake, you should have had them with the one label worldwide because then everyone's, you know, that label's really got the incentive to really invest what you've got to invest to really break the international. It worked out for them. They became what they became, you know, big international act. ACDs and NXS is obviously the brotherly nature. How, how did sort of the Andrew Tim John relationship yeah, well, differ uh, a little uh, bit from ACDC? That was one of the defining factors when I decided to sign them. I could see the value in brothers in bands. I mean, the Bee Gees, ACDC, and NXS, the common denominator of, you know, of those three big, big acts was um, having brothers in the band. Um, it just seems to be a great. Formula brothers yet in, uh, in excess. I mean, they're all very nice guys. Yeah, really lovely guys. No, there, there wasn't any clannish type sort of vibe. It's been a historically successful formula for bands from Australia to have have brothers. Uh, Is it? Yeah. <laughs> and you start you start with the New Zealanders, the Kiwis, uh, with the Finn brothers there, and um, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I guess with sort of Deluxe, you're still distributing these days uh, via sort of, uh, is it Blue Pie Records? Do you still have a, a digital platform with Deluxe? No, I, I do, but not with NXS. I, I sold the Deluxe 
uh, rights to in excess to the yeah. band. Yes. I sold the, the records. Yes. That's the recording rights back to the band. They just included that in their deal with whoever they, you know, they were with at the time. What about your other deluxe uh, artists? Did you still have involved with the label through distributed uh, with Blue Pie Records, or yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a few, uh, yeah, there's a few bits and pieces. They, they, yeah, it's, it's all pretty, yeah, pretty minimal, really. Yeah. But uh, yeah, the, that still turns over a little bit here and there. There's, and there was an interesting act uh, on the label called Toy Love from New Zealand. Um, who, who came to Australia and <laughs> everyone hated them, <laughs> but they were extraordinarily talented. The uh, Chris Knox, the singer, I think yeah. he's now deceased. Um, yeah. Interesting lineup. We had a group uh, called the Jew Guides from Perth, who were again, you know, a really you know, talented songwriter, a guy called Peter Crosby. So yeah, it was an interesting period. A, a rock band called Heaven. I got a deal for them with. Well, it was with Michael Clefton, who who was instrumental with me working with me on the on ACDC earlier on. He was at Atlantic, but he'd set up a label with uh, Columbia. Yeah, I did a deal with Columbia and Michael for Heaven, and it, again, it involved a substantial advance. And I put that back in that advance back into getting Heaven on the circuit in America. You know, it's one of those groups that they had. So many tours. I mean, they toured with Iron Maiden, with Kiss. I mean, they just toured with with everyone. We had them on high rotation on MTV. Yeah, we had them on pretty good amount of FM stations. For some reason, it just didn't resonate. They're known as the Australian group that had this incredible opportunity, but it just didn't work out for them. They, they became, I took them to LA and they just got caught up in the whole LA scene and became a party party band and yeah you know, did they have the did they have the songs in your opinion no at the end of the day their songs weren't as good as what they probably needed to be good live band uh, yeah singer was yeah good uh, yeah the, the bands that they were hanging out with motley Cruz and all those kind of bands in LA, in la you know that well that would have been a, that would have been a great influence wouldn't they yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, they were the best mates. They'd be up at the Rainbow Rainbow every night, you know. And Heaven were just kind of more infatuated with the lifestyle and just songwriting sort of really took, you know, second place. They kind of blew it. <laughs> so with NXS, we, we sort of, you know, as our podcast has sort of given, we'll dive deep, I should say, and, we're you know, we, we probably feel that we've, Developed quite a good understanding of their touring days and and their yeah. work ethic and self discipline. Was mm-hmm. it something that stood out to you through being there at the time? I got to tell you that group, their self discipline and work ethic was extraordinary. That I, I can I can remember. And I've told the story a few times. I'm not sure you know if it was in my book or or yeah. or, or what. But uh, if, if they were they were based in Sydney and if they were doing a gig in Newcastle. Which is like a good three-hour drive. They would Those drive up. Yeah. They would drive up there the day before, put posters everywhere. Yeah. Drive back and then drive back the next day to do the gig. I wow. mean, that's the level of commitment they had to themselves. You know, the the work ethic, and you know, and and you you know, you marry that with everything else, the talent, you know, the charisma of Michael Hutchins, Wallace, and that's what that's what broke them, and and that's what breaks you know people sometimes wonder why one band becomes successful and another band doesn't. It's that work ethic and commitment. You can't beat it. ACDC had it. 
Mm. You know, they would play anywhere or, you know, and any kind of gig, you know, and do whatever they had to do to get to the next level. NXS were the same. They had that same work ethic. And they'd sort of played for three years, almost touring, before they'd even recorded their first album, which these days is quite rare. Um, yeah, yeah. Did you find when they went into the studio, albeit, you know, they had a very sort of innocent sound in the early days, did you feel like they were well honed as a band and working unit when they started recording? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're all, you know, good musicians. Uh, they had, you know, between Michael doing, writing lyrics, Andrew, you know, writing the music side of it, you know, there was a good songwriting team there and it was really just for them it was it was more a question of just evolving a definitive direction yeah they're all like i said earlier they're just all over the joint yeah. and i guess what they had they did move to the bigger producer with mark opens when shabu shabar came out all the politics and everything aside mm-hmm. how did that how did that album sound to you when you first heard it did you very that yeah, was a yeah, breakthrough that, yeah definitely that arrived for sure so it sort of gave them that sugar hit, didn't it, to get over to America and, and yeah. take advantage of the MTV era and start touring as yeah. much as they could, yeah? And, you know, again, Warner Brothers, bigger budgets, better videos and all the rest of it. You know, the, uh, an independent label like Deluxe weren't able to, you know, afford you know, so. one of the bands I saw four weeks ago that you had an involvement with, and I was going to fire a couple of quick-fire questions at you. Noiseworks, John Stevens, tell us a bit about yeah. signing them and getting involved with them in around the mid-'80s there. I saw John on Countdown. He had a track called... Um, Jezebel? Yeah, I think it was Jezebel. He had a couple I of songs. Him, I saw him. Yeah. He, came, uh, he came over to Australia and they put him on Countdown. Yeah. And Countdown used to have all these girls in the audience, and I just watched the... Go, going ballistic. I thought, who is this guy? These, yeah, no one, they've never heard of him, but they're going absolutely ballistic for him. I called him, had a meeting with him. I said, let's, let's put a band together. At the same time, had a call from uh, the guys, a couple of the guys from My Sex. Yes. And uh, Kevin and Murray. They wanted to meet with me because they, they weren't happy with being in My Sex at that particular moment. And so, I had a John hooked up with those two guys. That was going to be a new band, loosely based around you know an American band called Asia. You know that. Yeah, 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 yeah. So kind of that, yeah, yeah. That kind of influence. Kevin and Murray decided that they you know they wanted to keep my six. You know, it just didn't work out. Sure. So then I, I I'd known Stuart Fraser for a long time. He was always hanging around, you know, the scene, you know, with ACDC and stuff. So I called Stuart and I put him together with John and then they just began songwriting together. Yeah, then we found Justin and Steve and Kevin, the drummer, was had already been there. That's how Noiseworks evolved. We had enormous success with them in Australia. It was 
Huge. I think one of the one of the great debut albums, you know. The fact that I think their three albums are fantastic. I saw them as I said about a month ago and yes, yeah. sad, sadly Stuart's no longer with us, but uh, him yeah. and John him and John were so tired and great songwriters together. But you know, Justin's gone on to America, had a great producing career, you know, overseas. Mm. And Steve, I guess, is ironically uh fronts bisex these days. I know it's you know it's, it's an old circle. Yeah, you know, he might know the history of Kevin and Murray. I'm sure they've talked about it. Uh, probably probably he does. <laughs> I, look, I, as a kid growing up, you know, my six were quite big in the early 80s, late 70s mm. in Australia. And fortunately, though, I think they lost their lead singer in a, in a car accident, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, ironically, Steve now sort of does the fill-in sort of vocals for them when they when they gig. So, yeah. And then, you know, John's filled into an excess, which is, I guess, part of our podcast today, you know. Uh, yeah. So it's funny how the worm turns, you know. It is. It is. Indeed. ACDC went down Swanson Street for Countdown. I was walking down the side of the side of the side of the truck, and if you look closely at the video, you'll see me in a jeans I and a white shirt. That, I thought that was you, so it just confirmed me. I have such pride when that film clip comes on because it was everything great about Melbourne Countdown, ACDC, a humble time. That was something that I think was it Molly and yourself put together for the band at the time. Yeah, Molly and directors of Countdown and Gavin, I think, Gavin's his name, the executive directors, producers of Countdown. And another part of our podcast is uh, ACDC and the Bee Gees, I guess, are, are two Australian acts uh, are in the Rock Hall of Fame, although they're not Australian-born acts, but I think obviously we would appreciate yeah. their careers uh, yeah. have occurred without Australia and people like yourself. In excess, haven't been nominated for the Rock Hall of Fame. We think they deserve it, and it's one of our yeah. sort of missions. Do you see as a little bit of an, a bit of an indictment on the Australian music scene that more Australian acts haven't been recognised globally in that Hall of Fame? I mean, I know it's a club and things, but we are really uh, quite pivotal in our contribution to the world music scene, you know? ACDC... And the Bee Gees had huge international success over a period of time, long mm. period of time, uh, in excess, bordering on that sort of you know same same thing. Although not not as long, arguably they should be in. I'm trying to think of who else. Crowded House, maybe. I don't think Midnight Oil resonated. They they, they sold five million records between Diesel and Dust, I think, and uh, Blue Sky yeah. in America. They did make an impact. But, yeah, you look at yeah. the artists, though, that are, are getting inducted, and I know it's probably a bit of a hobby horse of mine, but there are yeah. plenty of acts that are getting inducted now that didn't really have a huge impact in America at all. There may be more British impact. It feels like a yeah. British and American award, you know? Right, yeah, um, yeah. But Australia, I think, as you probably would appreciate, is definitely batted above its weight, you know, in the- no, I'm the, sure. Yeah. I mean, Little River Band, you could probably throw them in, but- 100%, you know, yeah. Kind of probably never going to happen because of- No. They, yeah, kind of uh, unfortunately let their name- They're, they're now a, a parading band calling themselves that in America, yeah, isn't yeah, you know, for the last 20 years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they just got totally you know, ripped off. To tie things up a little bit, I mean, tell, tell us a bit about what you're doing these days. Tell us a bit about Rust. Oh, Rust was um, my wife's thing. I'd sort of grown up in the world of antiques because when I had Sebastian's in Melbourne, the partner I had was in that world. And when we were making all that money out of Sebastian's and we were only kids, 
uh, their father, who was an antique dealer, said, you know, you know, I was asking what I should do with the money that I was making. He said, buy antiques. They grow up, they grow in value. <laughs> I got back into it just a brief period and it was great. I was doing buying trips to France and, you know, putting containers together of stuff and, you know, it was, was enjoyable, but we decided to close it down the uh, everything we bought from Europe was becoming too expensive and the exchange rate wasn't good and yeah so we stopped doing it yeah uh, but I'm I'm sort of back you know dabbling with some projects at the moment and I've got a cu- couple of interesting things on the boil you know s- sort of can't quite get it out of the system I noticed that obviously you're consulting a little bit and things like that as well is there any yeah, sort of projects consulting. yeah like yeah. Uh, I like I like the consulting thing because it's not something where I'm I'm sort of getting into people's lives I'm just taking a objective look look at you know what they need to do to get their career going and and then letting someone else carry it all out. We've been so lucky to have people like yourself on our show and uh, we had uh, Philip Mortlock on last year for a couple of episodes mm. um, who you might have crossed paths with. We had yeah, Cla- Philip was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we had Richard Clapton on as well who you yeah. mentioned earlier. You know, if I could, you know, praise, you know, your contribution, I think that what I sense from chatting to you and just my research is that any sort of uh, battle or, or struggle, you kept going. I think yeah. that's a philosophy that, you know, is admirable. Okay, one door shut, you open up another one. Another one, you succeeded, then open up the next one. And you kept going, going, going. And I think that's a, a fantastic thing that I could say about you, Michael. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. I, you know, yeah, well, I guess that's true. You know, like, I know this is going to sound strange coming from a rock band manager, but I'm not motivated by money. Yeah. Um, I'm motivated by making breaking a band and the excitement of making it happen and the music and, yeah. and the creative process, that's what turns me on. So that's what I enjoy doing. And once I've achieved what I think I started out to achieve, I start to lose interest in the management yes. of it, you know, the dealing with the money and yeah. the logistics really bores the shit out of me. I, I, yeah. I, just, I just like the whole, the, the whole creative process. Looking back and tying it all up, uh, is there an NSS song or album that uh, you look back on in their career that stands out for you as a as a fan, if I could say that? One of my favourite NSS songs was "Don't Change," you know, and the other one, "Stay Young." I really like that. Uh, we made that video on a beach just around the corner from where I lived. Uh, yeah, it was- <laughs> is it in Clontarf or whatever? In Clontarf, yeah, yeah. Well, I can let you in on a little secret. We had our second anniversary uh, podcast uh, birthday there. We went down to that beach and we sort of did a remake of the clip with us jumping around. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, we hired a drone and did everything there. So that was uh, back in the day where, you know, there's some clips that were, you know, not hugely expensive but are still iconic in their, in yeah. their legacy, aren't they? Yeah, well, I lived about 100 metres from that location. Beautiful little beach. Yeah. Uh, anything that gets you out of bed now that motivates the hell out of you, like it, you know, that keeps you focused and things. Anything that sort of just drives Michael Browning? Uh, I've got, I've got a, a couple of bands that I'm working with. There's, there's, there's one that's kind of you know interesting. They're called Pound for Pound. Uh, they've got a, a female lead singer. Well, they haven't done a gig yet. Well, I'm just, this okay. is we're just, yeah in the process of putting all this together. But they've got a lead. They've got a, a, a female lead singer. Called Cynthia. She's in a ACDC cover band in Melbourne called Whole Lot of Rosie. Oh, yeah, I've seen that. Uh, the time. Check her out. She is 
the bomb. She's extraordinary. I saw a billboard the other day for it, and I saw a female, and I was questioning, going, oh, that's yeah. different. Mate, yeah. You want to listen to her? She does She does the Bon Scott era, like, incredibly well. But wow. she also does, the, yeah, the Brian era, you know, just, just as well. I mean, she's extraordinary. She's just got lungs, and she looks great. She's fronting this band. They've got a They've got a really good guitar player, a guy called Kevin Pratt. Best mate is the guitar player out of Def Leppard. He's a really talented guitar player. The drummer is Theo. He's been around for a while and he's yeah, written all these pretty amazing songs. We've got Harry Vander's son wow. producing them. Wow. It's one of these acts that are probably going to be very difficult to break in Australia, but I think would, would, would absolutely in Europe and America absolutely just go down, you know, big, really big. So it's taken you 40 years, but you've actually created your new Asia, haven't you now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. The new supergroup. So they're called Pound for Pound, is that right? Pound, pound yes. Yeah, so yeah they, great name. They had a couple of other, yeah, fledgling, yeah, sort of projects. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Plus the most important project, uh, I think, is it keeping the, the missus happy with the new home and the move-in, is that right? Well, that's right. Yeah, that's been, <laughs> that's, that's been an interesting journey. And, um, <laughs> yeah. we, brought, we, we sold our house and bought a house on an island two weeks before settling. There was a landslide in it. Oh, my and, God. And the house got demolished. <laughs> oh, my God. So we're, we had, we've had to do all sorts of things, figure out what we're doing. And, you know, but fortunately, we got out of the contract, got our money. Yeah. It was, it's been a journey. So uh, we finally settled. <laughs> Well, look, you know, we, we we hope that we can sort of touch base again with you. I know we've probably sort of explored the surfaces of things, although um, some would say we've probably dove, dove deep a little more on ACDs and excess. But I think the I think the amalgam of the two is a really interesting story, and I wanted yeah. to have this podcast appeal to some ACDC fans as well as some excess fans because yeah, there's not many people around the world could say, well, you know, they were at the forefront of two iconic bands. I mean, some people strike gold once in their life, you know. Uh, yeah. To be involved at the start, be able to sign those bands particularly and work with them is is a credit. Your book, uh, Dog Eat Dog, we would we yeah. would love to get access to that. Is it something we can uh, – I, I, th- I clicked on your website. I couldn't quite sort of purchase it, but is there a way we could get access to some books and buy some books or do we yeah. just go, go to a Amazon or somewhere? It was published and Unwin in Australia. Yeah. It should be online. Right. Uh, and and I'm pretty sure it's still in stock. Uh, okay, well, great. Maybe get a couple of signatures on some. We might give them out to some of our patrons. We've got some very loyal patrons who listen yeah. in. They'd love to read it because I think you've probably commenced the discussion about some interesting, you know, topic points throughout the podcast. Yeah. But overall, I want to thank you very much for coming on. I hope you enjoyed as much as I have. I did. Terrific. Very much, Michael. Thanks okay. for coming thank on. No worries. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And this is Manny from the UK. This is Lisa Mack from Brisbane, Australia. And this is Felicia from Everett, Washington, USA. And that's a wrap. Wow. Well done, Hayden. That was a lot to take in there. That was brilliant. Well done to both of you. Really enjoyed it. And um, I hope that a lot of the In Excess and the Akadaka fans have both enjoyed it as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, what a CV. If you were to turn around and sort of... Uh, strike lightning once in your career and find a band and develop and manage them and whatever there and, and work with them, that can be such, you know, uh, lightning in a bottle. Um, to to do it twice uh, with two international acts, let alone the, the, some of the smaller homegrown acts is just, uh, you know, a fantastic testament. And um, 
you know, like a lot of our listeners, but you can sort of hear the credibility in Michael and just the the way he carried himself, particularly the story about helping out the ACDC boys, uh, ACDC boys early in their career when uh, they got stuck between Perth and Adelaide, you know. So, uh, yeah, good things happen to good people that do good things, Beef. Yeah, and he started so young. Was he 18? 18 or 19, yeah. 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 Anything's possible. Wow. Anything's yeah. possible. Wish, yeah. Yeah. And it's a different uh, time and pla- place, like you say, you know, you probably couldn't get away with half the stuff they did when, you know, starting out and stuff, stuff but like I love, that. But I love the, the sort of the cheek and the ambition and the keenness to sort of do something creative and, you know, there's something to be said about not being consumed by devices. <laughs> yeah, and getting out and doing stuff, you know, that's literally the era that he comes from and, and, and testimony to that. If you also like this episode and you would like to go back and have a bit of a parallel episode, uh, we do encourage you to go back to uh, our library page of, uh, of episodes. And if you go to episode 35, you will see where we do an NXS versus uh, ACDC deep dive. We think there's some good parallels in there for this episode where we sort of talk about the the growth of the bands in a bit more detail about their material and things. But we think that episode's a really good forerunner to this one. But yeah, B, we're going well, we, to... Hi, Dan. What I'll do is I'll, I'll put the link into the description so people can read it. Mm. That's right. If you like that episode or this one, uh, it's always great to rate us, but it's even better to recommend us. Did you like that, B? <laughs> I recommend us and share us. <laughs> and share us. Cool. All right. Tribute song B. For those who listened deeply into that particular episode, you will notice that uh, Michael talked about the fact that he lived around the corner from a very little famous suburb B we know quite well called Clontarf. Do you remember Clontarf B? Do I? <laughs> of course I do. I took you we there. We had a fun day there. B organised a fantastic bus trip just nearly a year ago where we went down there and we did our own version of Stay Young circa 2022. But we thought out of homage to Michael and a song that he really loved and also I think there's a song that the ACDC guys would like and the sentiment behind it, you know, Stay Young, you know, that young rock and rollers coming up and we're going to go out uh, with today's episode as a little bit of a tribute song to both bands but more importantly to Michael Browning who still I think to this day is staying young. Thank you Michael. It's a goodbye from me. Thank you Michael and it's a goodbye from B. Goodbye everybody. Sorry. It's called Stay Young. Thank you.
travel to have a good time. This is the Dutchie and you've been listening to In Excess, Access All Areas with Hayden and Bee.